Let's get uh, started with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Lord and Father, we come before you this morning with great thankfulness in our hearts. Pray that you would uh, calm our minds and our hearts, that we might listen to the words that come out of your scriptures. Father, we've come together to desire to gain understanding this morning. We recognize that we're desperately unable to do that unless your spirit would illumine our minds and show us the truth. So we ask him to do that. Lord, help us to um, gain understanding, and then as we gain understanding, to incorporate that understanding into the way we think about the world in which we live, the things that will take place, those that have taken place. And Father, may through that understanding we be able to better proclaim the the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our heart's desire this morning. So we give you praise and honor, and we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. This is week number 29 in our study of the book of Daniel, and we're over in chapter 8 again this morning. Uh, We looked at some of the middle verses of this last week, and we're talking about a king who comes out of one of the four kingdoms that came out of Alexander the Great's kingdom, and this king uh, basically wreaks havoc on the Palestinians or the people who live in Palestine. At this time, that would have been the Jews, Um, so we'll talk more about that as we get into the historical perspective of this, but um, in verses 13 and 14, we saw that this time of upheaval is not everlasting. It lasts, the scripture says, specifically for 2,300 evenings and mornings. And that's the same language that's used over in uh, Genesis chapter 1 to talk about evening and morning and the first day and evening and morning and the second day. So it it represents um, uh, one literal day. And so this catastrophe in Palestine lasts for 2,300 days, or about six and, not quite six and a half years. So it does last a long time, but it doesn't go on forever. And you'll remember that um, the angel Gabriel comes up to Daniel. Um, A voice calls from between the banks of the Uli River, which between the banks means in the river. Um, So it's probably above the river, actually. Um, Probably the voice of God speaking to Gabriel, telling Gabriel to give Daniel an understanding of what he saw in his vision. So um, we're coming to the end of this vision. I'll I'll make some modifications to what I told you previously, where I thought the vision ended um, as we go through this this morning. So that's where we're at. We're at the point where Gabriel is coming up to Daniel after he's seen the vision in order to give him an interpretation of this vision. So down in verse 17 is where we'll pick up this morning. And this is, um, well, we'll read 16 just to gain context. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, Give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. 
But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now when he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand upright. He said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. So so in these verses, we have some statements that give us some time frame references as to what this vision is and when it will um, happen. Now, when Daniel first saw Gabriel, he said he saw a man in verse 15. Um, he said, I see, I see this guy in the distance, and he looks like a man. So he has the appearance of a human being. And Daniel's not frightened. But when the angel comes near to him, he becomes very frightened and falls on his face before him, basically prostrating himself before this angel. So the question occurred to me, why is he now frightened when before he was absolutely fine when he saw Gabriel? And so you think about this a little bit. And when he first saw Gabriel, he heard a voice talking, but it wasn't talking to Gabriel. And then Gabriel communicated with someone, something, probably God himself, who could give him instruction. I mean, this is an angel now who's being given instruction. So this has to be God who is directing him what to do, or a higher angel, possibly, but probably God himself. And so now Daniel understands that this guy can talk to God. Now, Daniel understood that God had answered his prayers, such as when he prayed, um, asking God to give him the vision of Nebuchadnezzar, and he did that and gave him the interpretation. So Daniel knew that God could hear him, but he's never heard the voice of God speaking audibly to somebody and someone carrying on a conversation with God. So when this angel comes up before him now, he's recognizing that there's something special about this guy. He's not just a regular human being. He's having conversation with the Creator. And so he's now very frightened. Um, Apparently, Gabriel still had the appearance of a man, so no wings, no great glory, none of that. But yet, he's talking to God, and God is giving him instruction to give Daniel an understanding. Daniel doesn't know what this means, but this angel does. So he recognizes the um, supremacy of this angel over himself, so he falls down and is terrified and presses his face to the ground. Now, interesting, before what I told you is that I thought this vision had probably ended in previous verses because Daniel says um, in verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, meaning that sounds like the vision is over with, But then I I thought about this some more as I was trying to prepare this lesson. That cannot be true because he's still in the citadel. He's still beside the Uli River. And we know Daniel's in Babylon when he's writing all of this. So he's not physically in the citadel or beside the Uli River. And he's not hearing these voices where he physically is. So the vision can't be over. So the vision continues. It kind of has two parts. 
It has the first part, which is all the action. And then it has the second part that gives Daniel an understanding of the action that he saw. Then the vision ends. So as Gabriel is talking to him here, he's still in his vision. It hasn't ended yet because, I mean, Gabriel's not in Babylon. He's in um, Susa in the province of Elam beside the Uli River. So the vision continues on. So I was wrong when I said that previously that I thought it had come to an end. It clearly hasn't, I don't think. Um, the best I can understand what is going on here. Now, you notice that D Gabriel calls Daniel son of man. This is another one of the things that would terrify him. Why would he call him son of man? Well, I think he's drawing a distinction between who he is as an angel and who Daniel is as a human being. So he's pointing out, and you know, this is, we looked at this back in chapter 6 when um, we had the, chapter 7, when we had the, the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne, getting ready to pronounce judgment, and then the Son of Man, representing Jesus Christ, came up to him. And this is the vision where um, Jesus Christ got his favorite description of himself, calling himself Son of Man. And the reason he did that was not because it was in Daniel, but it emphasized his humanity, that he was truly a man born of woman. And so that's the same thing, the reason that Gabriel's using it here with Daniel to point out that you're a man, but I'm an angel. And there's a difference between us, and I have understanding and you don't. So I'm here to give you the understanding that I have. So Daniel clearly terrified um, of this angel. Now, uh, the next verse says that Daniel presses his face to the ground and that he falls into a deep sleep. Um, so, and that Gabriel touches him and causes him to stand up. And as Gabriel begins to speak to him, he says some very interesting things. You'll notice um, in verse 17, he says, So, son of man, understand that the virgin vision pertains to the time of the end. Okay, so the question becomes, what does the time of the end indicate, represent, when is that? And I think there's at least two different ways you can interpret this. And I'll tell you my, favorite, my, my preference after I give you the two. The first could be this vision, as we've seen, is about a ram and a goat. And those represent the second and third kingdoms of the four kingdoms that we saw in chapter 7. Because we're told very plainly this is Medo-Persia, the ram, and that the goat represents Greece. So those are the two middle kingdoms that we saw in chapter 7. So this vision doesn't go beyond that. It's about Medo-Persia and Greece. And nothing after that is given in this vision. So you could take the time of the end to mean the time of the end of this vision and that it ends when Greece is defeated by Rome. And um, so that would be one way that you could take it. You could take it a second way, 
which would mean that it's the time of the end of the age. And by age, I mean where sin reigns and where righteousness doesn't reign, where sin is prevalent on the planet. And that would be the time both when Daniel lived and when we live. So because sin is still here and nothing has really changed since Daniel other than Jesus Christ came to defeat sin, that's been accomplished, but we still live in a, in a sinful world. We ourselves are still tainted with sin, and righteousness clearly does not reign in this world. There's a time coming when righteousness will reign at the end of this age. So the end of the age would mean the end of the age in which sin flourishes, in which sin dominates, when Satan is the prince of the power of the air as he is today. And so that would be yet a future time from when we we're standing here this morning. That could be interpreted as the time of the end. So either one of those, I think, are reasonable and valid. You'll read, uh, if you read all the commentaries, you'll see guys with different persuasions um, saying that, no, this is the end of the vision. Some say it's the end of the age. Some say this is not real. This is symbolic only, and that there is no specific time, there is no specific king. So, um, you know, all of those exist, and are, you can go read them as well as, as I can. Um, using the hermeneutic we use, we take this as literal, believing this is a real king, and that it will really happen, and that these things that Daniel has seen will be played out sometime in the history of humans. And if you take it to be the first end, it happened during when the Greeks reigned. And so that'll be the persuasion that I take. That's the one that I favor. It'll, I'll give you reasons for that, um, probably beginning next week, of who this was in history that did these actions. And that's why last week I went through and we listed the actions that this king did. And we'll go back and do that again to match that up to a historical figure that came at the end of the Greek reign, so, uh, which would have been in the early, mid-2nd century B.C. Um, so we'll, we'll go through all of that, and I'll show you that once we get what the angel says to Daniel on the table and, and we can talk about it. So, yeah. spiritual battle that's going on in the heavenlies now between good angels, bad angels, yeah. Right. More than twice, but yeah. <laughs> yes, he's the one who gave the message to Zacharias and to Mary. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, and what Andy's speaking of, there's a coming in chapter 9, um, Gabriel speaking to Daniel again after Daniel has prayed for days. And um, what he says is that when you first started praying, I was dispatched. But I couldn't get to you because the angel of Persia detained me and didn't allow me to come. Now, that would have been the angel of Persia influencing Belshazzar. Yeah, an evil angel. And so he still couldn't get by that angel. And this is, we'll see this in chapter 9. Until Michael, the archangel, came and pushed the evil angel out of his way, then Gabriel could make his way. So there's something going on that we don't fully understand, right, in the heavenly places, such that Gabriel, an angel of God who brings the most important messages ever given, can't get to the people he's supposed to get to because there's an evil angel stopping his way. It's crazy stuff to think about, but it's in the scripture, it's real. And it goes on today. We don't see it, we don't fully understand it, but it's not, nothing's changed since the time of Daniel. So um, we, we go on and we think about this. Now, um, often in scripture, and you'll find this, you go and read many of the prophecies, there is a short-term fulfillment, and then there's yet a future fulfillment. And um, we, we saw this in Ezekiel when it was a short-term fulfillment, that when Ezekiel was talking about how wayward the Jews had gone, and ultimately we saw the presence of God leave the temple that Solomon built. And that paved the way Daniel, I mean, Ezekiel preached for um, many years that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And finally, in chapter 33 of Ezekiel, he gets word that that has happened. So that was a near-term fulfillment of the destruction. But here, specifically, Gabriel says, this doesn't pertain to now. This is many days in the future. This is at the time of the end. So you're, you're given clues throughout the scripture of when they're talking about. Now, I personally believe that this vision happens in within a couple of hundred years, 300 years after it's given to Daniel, but then yet it foreshadows what's going to happen at the end of the age. I could be wrong about that, but that's what I think is going on here. The near-term fulfillment is when Greece actually destroys Palestine. The long-term fulfillment, which would be the time of the end of the age, is foreshadowed in this, what happens here. Because something very similar to this happens later in Scripture. And we'll see that spoken of, and I'll match those two up for you again. It's in chapter 9, right at the very end, where it says that the sacrifices again are stopped. And that's not this time that we're speaking of here, and I'll show you that in the scriptures, that it's not talking about this time at the end of the Greek reign. So, I mean, we're given lots of information throughout Daniel. And if you don't make distinctions 
between chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9 as to what they're talking about, you'll get very confused. But they're not all talking about the same events. Chapter 7 was clearly talking about what um, Rome did um, during their reign and to Jesus Christ. It's all given there. Chapter 8 is talking about Medo-Persia and Greek. Chapter 9 will go back and talk about the time when the Romans, and it says this, cut off the Messiah. So it's talking about the time when Jesus Christ was crucified. And so those distinctions are in the scriptures. But if you don't make them as you go through, you'll get confused. So that's why I spend so much time talking about the time of the end. Now, he goes on, he says more that um, gives us more understanding. Um, so I told you that I think the vision is continuing here. Um, he goes on in verse 19, and he says, verse 18 is just the angel touching Daniel and causing him to stand up. So don't know if Daniel's still asleep or what's going on. He's still in his vision, um, but he's, he's aware of what is being said to him because he writes it down. And we saw that at the very beginning of this chapter, that Daniel said, I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget it. So we know that he's aware of what is happening. So that's what happens in verse 18. Verse 19, he said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to an appointed time of the end. Now, so we get two things here, right? The end of the in, in, indignation and the, time, the appointed time of the end. Okay, so is he repeating himself or is he saying something different? Um, or are valid questions to use. Now, indignation means anger bordering on, on um, was more than wrath, um, rage is what it borders on. So you're very angry and it's bordering on rage. So you look in this passage and you say, who is in that condition? And we're not told, right? It it's really is nobody other than the king is destroying people. And that would be another interpretation of indignation is wrath that leads to punishment or destruction. That's what indignation would be. And so it's the king who is the one who is destroying things and doing whatever he well pleases. Remember, he threw truth to the ground, meaning he doesn't care what God says, he doesn't care what the scriptures say, he doesn't care what other governments say, he doesn't care what men say, he's going to do whatever he well pleases. He throws, flings truth to the ground. So he doesn't care what anybody else thinks is truth. And he does, and the scripture says this, whatever he pleases. And so I believe this speaks of the king who is indignant, who is angry, who is wrathful, um, who is the one wreaking havoc on those in Palestine at this time. So if that's true, then the end of the indignation 
is when that king is no longer in control, which would be at the end of the 2300 days that we saw previously that he has given to him to wreak havoc. So this would be at the end of the Greek kingdom, which is one of the reasons why I believe that's what it was talking about previously. Because here it says the indignation comes to an end. Final period of the indignation. That means that's the end of it. And so I match that up to what he said previously, and that's why I believe that we're not talking about far distant future even for us. We're talking about the end of the Greek reign, and we're talking about the end of this vision, not the end of the age. Okay? Make perfect sense, right? Maybe not. Um, but anyway, that's the way that I see it. Um, it's the way I interpret it because of the language that is used in what Gabriel says for no other reason other than what Gabriel is giving as an understanding. Remember, Gabriel is there. Daniel standing beside him. They're now side by side standing there having a conversation. And Gabriel is there specifically to give Daniel an understanding. So he's not there to confuse him. He's there to clarify for him what he's seen. And so if that's true, then Gabriel is there and Daniel wrote it down to clarify for us what this vision means. So there, there has to be some understanding being given by Gabriel the angel. That's why God told him, go give this man understanding. Now, it doesn't mean that Daniel understood everything perfectly. doesn't mean that we understand everything perfectly. But that's the purpose for Daniel to speak what he says from here to the end of the chapter, is to give understanding, not to give confusion. So, um, and we need to have that perspective that that's why this was given, that's why it's written in the book of Daniel. That's why Daniel wrote it down and God preserved it through the ages so that we might read it and we might gain understanding. Now you know, and I've told you this, there are a lot of people who believe this is, um, was written in the first or second century B, uh, BC, that it was someone pretending to be Daniel who wrote all this crazy stuff. But I don't believe that. I believe that Daniel wrote it while he was in Babylon somewhere around 550 BC. But you'll, if you go read the literature, you'll see many people who don't take this to be true. Now, those who I think are truly believers in Jesus Christ, who place faith in him and are truly saved and redeemed and will be in the eternal kingdom, there are different interpretations, but they don't say that Daniel didn't write it. They agree that Daniel wrote it, but maybe it doesn't mean quite what I'm presenting to you. So the final period of indignation, I believe that's the indignation of the king who's wreaking havoc, is the end of the 2300 days, is the end of the Greek kingdom. And I'll show you that in, in history, who this person is and that he came right at the end. And that's what the scripture says here. He came right at the end of the reign of the four kingdoms of Greece. But he had to come out of one of them. He just doesn't say in scripture which one. So we'll look at some, some historical figures and try and determine that. 
And then he says, this time, this end of indignation, this 2300 days is, pertains to the appointed time of the end. Now, there's a couple of things here that are interesting. First of all, he says appointed. Okay, so <laughs> the king is doing what he wants to. He's wreaking havoc. He is volitionally destroying the people of Palestine, overcoming them. But he's doing it according to someone else's plan because it was appointed for him to do this. So this isn't, I mean, it is the king doing what he wants to. There's no doubt about that. And we see that all through history, that, that rulers, evil rulers, good rulers, they do what they want to. But there is an oversight. There is a plan that was predetermined before these guys took action. There is an appointed time for this king to come against Palestine. So that could only be appointed by the creator who is over all, who is sovereign over all, who is sovereign over this evil king. And you'll remember back in, I like to refer to this because is I believe, part of the uh, theme of Daniel. Back in chapter 2, where Daniel is praying to God to praise him for giving him Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the understanding of it. So Daniel bursts forth in this praise in chapter 2. And if you look down at like, I think it's verse 19, is where it starts. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to the men of understanding. And he goes on. And he praises God. But the thing I want to point out is that it is God who changes the epochs and the times. And the way that he does that is that he establishes kings and removes kings. And so this king, who is wreaking havoc against Palestine, and where the temple is, where they're sacrificing to God, where there's true worship going on, is doing it at the sovereign ordained will of God. Now, why? God knows, I don't. It, you know, we saw it in when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, he did so at the ordination of God, an evil king destroying the Jews, and he did it because God wanted the Jews to be punished. And then, amazingly, Later, God uses the Persians to punish the Babylonians for destroying the Jews. But they did it because God wanted it done. You see the same thing in Isaiah. Many of the clear examples in Isaiah 10. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And against the godless nation, I send him, speaking of Assyria, and against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoils, his plunder, and to tread them down like the miry streets. That's Israel, his beloved people. And then he says this, but he does not so intend. Right. <laughs> and in his heart does not think so, but in his heart it is to destroy and to cut off the nation, not a few. Right? So he, what God does, he literally just lets go of the restraint of a man's heart. Right. And he goes to the darkest people he can find. And there he's talking about Assyria, not coming against these same people, but coming against the northern ten tribes who they carried off with fish hooks in their lips. And yet of Nebuchadnezzar, he also says he is my hand as he destroys Jerusalem. So can you fully understand that? I can't. But this I know, that God has a plan written before the foundations of the earth. And that plan has played out perfectly throughout history according to the will of God. I mean, that's why the scriptures say at the fullness of time, Jesus Christ came. Because God had lined everything up just perfect for Jesus to come, be rejected by the Jews, and yet crucified by the Romans. Everything was in perfect place to happen as God ordained it to happen. Right. And this, we'll see it in chapter 10. The angel is literally reading from the scroll, which is the plan of God telling Daniel what's going to happen in the future. I mean, he says, I'm reading the scroll to you. That's the plan of God that was written before the foundations of the earth. And so this appointed time is not appointed by this evil king. It's appointed by God. And God intended for this to happen. He intended for it to last 2,300 days. And it did last 2,300 days. Go ahead. <laughs> How about this? Right. It includes beyond the end of the age. Yeah. The plan of God includes not only what I believe is the literal millennial reign of Jesus Christ, it includes the war that happens after the millennial reign. Remember, we talked about that in Revelation chapter 20 and it includes what happens after that which is the judgment of the living and the dead but the point I'm getting at is that we tend to think that uh, Antiochus fulfills this so perfectly that right about him. but that's because it's about Antiochus and the end time Antiochus came along and fulfilled the scripture about the end time and it's because Satan led him yeah, but that's a leap to make that decision. Um, okay, that's a, that's a leap because the scripture, I mean, again, you have to decide what you believe it means. I do believe that Antiochus foreshadows the coming of the Antichrist. I do believe that. And yet the fulfillment of this vision is not at the end of the age because it, this vision is about 
Medo-Persia, and Greece. Not about what comes after them. That's what this vision is about. It's clear that's what this vision is about. So, I mean, again, I'm, I'm not telling you how you have to take this. I'm telling you how I take it and what I believe it means. And that's the best I can do. You have to ultimately decide in your heart what you think it means. So I'm not trying to dictate to you. I'm just trying to help you think about it, to be stimulated to think about these words that Gabriel spoke to Daniel. Now, one last thing, and then we'll finish. Verses 20 and 21 could not be more explicit. There is no way Gabriel could have been more explicit about who this vision is about. I mean, just read them. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the king of Media and Persia. How clear is that? That's pretty clear. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Who's the first king of the Greek kingdom? Alexander the Great. So he's the one represented by the horn. And then he goes on, I think, yeah, the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. And we know that happened in history. It's well recorded that out of Alexander's the kingdom, wars for about 40 or 50 years, and then four kingdoms established. The two strongest of those are Ptolemy in Egypt and the Seleucian in Syria down in the Persia area. Those are the two strongest. And then you've got... Um, Lysicomachus and Cassandra, uh, Cassandra over the um, Macedonian area, Lysicomachus to the east of that, and then down into the other two, Ptolemy and Seleucian, and those are the two strongest by far. So this is teed up for us, and I mean, we have the advantage Daniel didn't have. We can look back. I mean, Daniel didn't even know there was a Greek kingdom, right? It didn't exist at the time when this was given to him. He knew about Medo and Persia, but they weren't in power. Babylon still was. This is in the third year of Belshazzar's reign. It's still eight more years until the end of the Babylonian reign when Cyrus and Darius come in and take the kingdom. So Daniel didn't know these things. We have the advantage of looking backwards. And, well, and in fact, they were, right? I mean, I mean, at this time, when Daniel's writing, Israel does not exist. They are in captivity in Babylon. And when they go back, as Cyrus decrees for them to go back, and then some people after Cyrus decree for them to go back, they all don't go back. Persia's not a bad place to live. It's Mesopotamia. 
It's between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. It's a nice place. And Israel's not so nice. And so a lot of them don't go back. They stay in Babylon. Now, the faithful who want to worship God truly, they go back. They'd be people like Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and Ezra. Those guys go back. But a lot of people don't go with them. Because, matter of fact, a lot of those people were born in Babylon. I mean, they were there 70 years. So a lot of these people have no idea of what he's talking about when he writes these things. Because they weren't around when any of this happened. Yeah, they're still here. They're still here. So that's where we'll stop for today. Pick up back there in verses 20 through 22 next time, if the Lord wills, and go on through uh, the explanation that Gabriel gives to Daniel. Thanks for your time.